This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 14th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. Can the federal government simply scream supremacy clause when its agreements with states don't produce happy outcomes? Of course not. But one case teed up for a potential Supreme Court hearing might offer just that clarification. Dave Kopel, Associate Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute, comments. This case has a lot in it. There's the death penalty. There is whether jurisdictions can abridge uh, the, the death penalty uh, for crimes that are committed within their uh, jurisdiction. And also there's this fight here between state power and federal power and whether the federal government really has to abide by uh, pieces of legislation that it has agreed to abide by. Exactly. And the that state-federal issue is what brought the Independence Institute into the case. In the amicus brief, we're filing uh, to the Supreme Court, urging the court to, to grant certiorari. So describe the case. Jason Plough, P-L-E-A-U, is out on parole for crimes already committed, was convicted of various crimes, sent to prison in Rhode Island, was out on parole, then robs a bank and in the course of the robbery, a innocent person is murdered. Rhode Island immediately revokes his parole. So he's back in prison in Rhode Island now for the remaining 18 years of his existing prison term for his previous crimes. And Rhode Island wants to prosecute him for this murder and robbery. Rhode Island doesn't have the death penalty, but Plo has agreed to plead guilty to the murder and robbery and accept a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. The U.S. attorney in Rhode Island also wants to prosecute this guy, Plo, and of course, there's since he's already set up for life in prison without parole, there's nothing else they can do except execute him. So they, as they get the prosecution going, they file the proper notice, which says we we may seek the death penalty. The final decision on that actually depends on, on the U.S. Attorney General, but at least at this stage, they're making it a, a death-eligible case. Since the early 1970s, there has been a state-federal agreement called the Interstate Agreement on Detainers Act, which provides the procedures by which prisoners held by one jurisdiction can be transferred to another jurisdiction for prosecution in that second jurisdiction. 48 of the 50 states are parties to this Interstate Agreement on Detainers Act, and so is the United States. The United States voluntarily joined the agreement as an equal party, and the agreement was actually enacted into a federal statute by the United States Congress. So it's a federal statute. It's not like a treaty that the federal government has engaged in with states. It's both. It, it, is, a, it is a compact, and like a contract or, or a, a treaty in a sense, and it is also a federal statute. So it's pretty powerfully woven into federal law now, used all the time. There are thousands of transfers between states or between states and the federal government going in both directions. Pursuant to this, and it's been working quite well. The act provides that the what's called the sending state, the state that currently has the prisoner, can refuse 
a transfer request within 30 days of that transfer being made. So Rhode Island has refused the transfer because, in part, Rhode Island doesn't have the death penalty. Exactly. And uh, the governor, at the very least, is politically uh, in the right for uh, refusing. Yes. Rhode Island has abolished the death penalty. Governor Lincoln Chafee exercised his plain right under the Interstate Agreement on Detainers Act to say, no, we are not going to transfer this guy because – and he said it was very plainly. It was because he doesn't want the criminal to be executed because Rhode Island doesn't have the death penalty. This is a crime committed by a Rhode Island citizen against another Rhode Island citizen on Rhode Island soil and Rhode Island is punishing him the way Rhode Island sees fit and he does not want – the governor said, no, you federal government, you can't have him. So the federal government having thus been rejected under the Interstate Agreement on Detainers Act to which the federal government is a party said, OK, fine. We can't get him this way and they went to a federal district court and got the federal district court to issue a writ called a writ of habeas corpus ad prosequendum. That's not the the standard habeas corpus writ. The the, the famous one is uh, called the Great Writ, where a prisoner who might be being held in violation of the law is brought to court so the court can examine the legality of that person's detention. This is one of about a half a dozen other less famous habeas corpus writs where the court says, bring forth the prisoner to me so he may be prosecuted criminally. The issue ultimately ended up in the First Circuit Court of Appeals where first a three-judge panel ruled two to one that no, the federal government, once it's gone down the road of the Detainers Act, can't in essence nullify its own compliance with that Detainers Act agreement and step outside and, and do a habeas corpus ad prosequendum writ to try to get the guy. And then the case was further reviewed by an uh, en banc panel, panel of the First Circuit, which split three to two the other way with a, a very vigorous dissent. But the, the three said, yeah, because the federal there's a supremacy clause in the U.S. Constitution and in essence, we interpret this to mean the federal government always wins whenever it wants to win and it doesn't matter that they had this agreement which specified – alternative procedures under which the federal government might sometimes lose as it did in, in when Governor Chafee refused to do the transfer. So the attorneys for Governor Chafee and for the, the criminal PLO have both petitioned for certiorari before the U.S. Supreme Court and for the Independence Institute, I wrote an amicus brief in support of their petition focusing mainly on the, the federalism issues and the, the core point that the federal judiciary and the state judiciaries are not in a hierarchical relationship. The federal judiciary is not the superior and the state's the inferior. Rather, as our whole constitutional system of government sets up, they are both separate and sovereigns within their own spheres. So you can go back to ex parte Bowman, a habeas corpus case from 1807 where Chief Justice Marshall explained the point I I just said, that the state courts are not at all inferior to federal courts. And that point is reiterated by a case called Covell from the 1870s by an 
opinion by Chief Justice Taft for a unanimous court in Ponzi versus Fessenden involving the guy who created the Ponzi scheme in the 1920s and on and on and on. State courts are not inferior to federal courts. And so therefore, whenever a federal court does issue a writ of habeas corpus ad prosequendum and says, hey, you've got a state government, you've got a state prisoner, give him to us so we can prosecute him in federal court, that when state courts or state officials do that and they turn the prisoner over to the feds for prosecution, they are doing that purely voluntarily as a matter of comity, it's called. They are not doing it because the federal court can compel them to do so on this particular writ. So that's our argument. The implications here are pretty big. Anytime the federal government enters into an agreement that uh, absent that agreement would implicate the supremacy clause. Yes. And that, that's why, for example, the National Governors Association representing all 50 governors in the United States the majority, of course, of which are governors of states that do have the death penalty and would probably not mind at all if Jason Plough were executed. They filed an amicus brief on in support of Governor Chafee because their core point is we, the states, make agreements with the federal government all the time. And in an agreement, each side gives up some things in exchange for other things that are more important. And we expect that going forward, all the parties to the agreement, including the federal government, are bound by this agreement unless they withdraw from it. But as long as they're part of the agreement, they've got to obey it. And yet here we have, say, the states. We have the federal government coming in and saying, well, yeah, that is the agreement. But on the other hand, there's the supremacy clause in the U.S. Constitution. And what we mean by the supremacy clause is the federal government wins all the time whenever it has a conflict with the states. Therefore, say the state governors, it seems like our agreements with the federal government are kind of worthless. Where is this case right now? The Supreme Court will uh, probably be considering it soon in conference. The uh, Solicitor General, as of right today, September 15th, has recently said that they're not going to file a response to the cert petitions. That's probably just a delaying tactic. Nothing illegitimate about using delaying tactics as, as a lawyer, but that, that's what this looks to be because there, there, there are plenty of, of weak cases for certiorari that are sent to the Supreme Court and the Solicitor General quite properly says we're not going to spend taxpayer money responding to all of them. This, however, is something where you've got a split of opinion among the circuit courts. You've got a 3-2 split in an en banc decision from a circuit court of appeals. And you've got a case of such drastic importance that it had the National Governors Association uh, very strongly involved at the lower court level. And there will be some Besides the Independence Institute, we'll likely have some other amici urging certiorari in this case. So my guess would be the Supreme Court will say to the Solicitor General, well, in, in this one, we do want a response from you. So please send us a response. And I'm moderately hopeful that the end result will be the Supreme Court will, will grant certiorari and put it on its argument calendar for this 2012 to 13 term. Dave Kopel is an associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.